Christ is ours. And we'll learn more about that today as we continue our study in 1 John. Please take your Bibles, turn with me to 1 John chapter 1. We'll read this morning verses um, 1, 5, chapter 1, verse 5, all the way to chapter 2, verse 2. But the focus of our study this morning will be on verses 5 through 9. 1 John chapter 1, if you're visiting with us today, I'd encourage you to follow along in the blue Bible provided in the pew pocket in front of you. You'll find that on page 1021. 1021. Again, remember, stay with me all the way from 1-5 to 2-2. Let's read together. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In September of 1983, the Getty Museum in Los Angeles received an offer to buy an ancient statue known as a kuros. You would recognize these as just a typical marble statue of a young man uh, with one foot in front of the other. They're pretty valuable. There's only about 200 known in the world at this time, and they're almost 2,000 years old apiece. So what was the asking price for this particular statue? $10 million, or at least close to that. So, as you would expect, the museum moved cautiously. The enterprising art dealer, Gianfranco Bacina, produced all the appropriate legal documentation. They even brought in geologists from the University of California at Los Angeles to examine the statue. They looked at it with a high-resolution stereo microscope. And then in addition to that, I mean, to prove its authenticity, they even allowed one of the geologists to take a core sample from the statue and to analyze it to ensure that it was as old as they said it was. After two years of research, the Getty was fully satisfied. They shelled out the over $9 million, and they put the statue on display. And in fact, it was such a big deal in the art world that it even made the front page of the New York Times in 1986. But... As experts 
continued to trickle in from across the world. They kept remarking when they walked away from the statue that something just didn't seem right. In fact, the rising tide of suspicion from the experts grew so overwhelming that in 1991, the Getty would eventually print in their catalog, underneath the picture of this statue, about 530 B.C. or a modern fraud. They didn't know. Over the years, the questions and the research have continued to trickle in to such a degree that in April of this year, the statue has found a new home. It's in a storage closet at the Getty in its Malibu branch. The evidence was overwhelming. The suspicions of the experts were correct. The kuros was indeed a forgery. Over $9 million was wasted. (laughs) And stories like this could be repeated a million times over. I'm not much into art as an investment, but I am told by those who know more about it than me that over half of the paintings on the international market today are frauds. Half. (laughs) And whether it be paintings or people, it is so hard to discern what's real. In the art world, the consequence of a counterfeit is merely money. With people, it could be a broken heart. With spiritual truth, eternity itself could be on the line. Both those in and out of the church agree that hypocrisy, or counterfeits, if you will, are rampant. I mean, you've heard it, right? You've ever invited someone to church and they say, no, I don't want to go to church with all those hypocrites, (laughs) those counterfeits. Or, Or maybe you've even lamented it yourself. You look around and you see other people and they claim to be Christians and You think, what what are they doing? I wish they just wouldn't say anything. Why the hypocrisy? Why the inauthenticity? It's a big deal. And there's so much at stake. So how then do we know the difference between what is real and what is fake? In the case of our soul, we don't have hundreds of experts and batteries of tests to bring the truth to light. Or maybe we do. Maybe there are some quick, expedient, effective ways by which we can discern whether or not the faith that we have or the faith that others claim is indeed real. How can we know if our relationship with God is real or fake? Well, this is the concern of the text. This is the burden of this pastor. My concern today is threefold. I'll just go ahead and lay my cards out on the table, if you will. Obviously, I'm concerned about those who would be self-deceived. I mean, statistically, it's, it's likely, it's probable that there's someone in here today who has somehow convinced themselves that they're a Christian when they indeed are really not. Your conduct does not line up with your confession. But that's not the only group that I'm concerned for. 
I don't want everybody walking out of here today wondering whether or not they're really a Christian, if they really are, because I think there's a second group that we should be concerned for this morning, and that is those who need not to question their salvation, but those who need to be assured of it. If the self-deceived is one group, I think there's another group who is (laughs) self-condemned. You are always asking the same questions over and over again. I mean, I think that anybody who's been in church any length of time knows that to truly be a Christian, one must believe in Jesus, one must trust in Jesus. But here comes the million-dollar question for us all. How do we know if we really trust? How do we know if that faith is really real? I think this text speaks to that. And then there's a third group in here for which I'm concerned. And frankly, this group may not even be in here at all. But this should be a concern for everyone who's a member, at least at Faith Bible Church, and that is others who may be suffering from category one or category two. See, the truth of the matter is, even if we ourselves aren't self-deceived, and even if we ourselves do have a proper understanding of assurance and we're confident in our own salvation, I would bet the $9 million if I had it and I was a betting man. That you know someone in your family or in your sphere of influence who is self-deceived or someone who does lack assurance. And it is my responsibility as a minister of the gospel to equip you, the saints, for the work of the ministry. They may not be here this morning, but you may need to pass this along to them. And it is at this point that we see that our concerns aligned squarely with the Apostle John's. He writes this letter, as you'll recall, to a group of believers who have endured a mass defection from the faith. And it's left many of them to wonder if they were right in staying behind. The analogy that I gave you last week is if 25 to 50 percent of our church just got up and walked out one Sunday, how would you feel? Especially if these were people that you loved and trusted and cared for, people who showed up at the hospital when you were there, people who were with you when you were first converted. I mean, you can only imagine the effect that that would have if they all left one day. Were the ones who broke off from the church the real Christians? Which group really enjoyed fellowship with God? How could the remaining people know if they were truly the ones with fellowship with God? In verses 1 through 4, we saw John has uh, listed the essential apostolic message concerning the divine human Jesus that must be received for fellowship with God. He's saying that there is a doctrinal test. Here it is. Do you believe in the divine human Jesus? Have you received this message? If you deny him as divine, you haven't really received God's message. You don't have fellowship with him. If you deny him as human, you haven't received God's message. But is it all doctrinal? Is it just about what we believe? Not quite. Because here, John will elaborate upon this apostolic message, learn from Christ. He's going to talk about God's absolute moral purity and then unpack the ethical consequences, or what I will call evidences, of true fellowship with God How do I know if I really believe? Well, here's some of the behaviors that will follow. He wants his readers, or the ones who remained in that church, to be able to affirm or to examine the authenticity of their fellowship with God in light of the official authoritative message. And what he particularly does here is he uses three claims. Three claims from the people who broke away from the church 
to test their genuine relationship with God. Now, I'm not, we're going to do this in the process, but what I want you to notice in the overview here, because this is a two-part message, is that there will be a positive statement and then there will be a negative statement, and then a positive and then a negative, and then a positive and then a negative. John has one theological truth, and then he gives these positive and negative statements to really test whether or not our fellowship is real. He gives us these evidences of authentic fellowship. And we'll examine these today so that we can do one of three things. Either affirm our faith, to examine or evaluate our faith, or three, help others do the same. So, let's look at these in turn. Authentic fellowship with God first is evidenced by a pattern of godly behavior. Authentic fellowship with God is evidenced by a pattern of godly behavior. Look at verses 5 through 7. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Here's the first positive statement. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, here's the opposite. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, this test is based on one's walk, not one's talk. And what I love about it is it is rooted in sound theology. He is building on a theological foundation, and that foundation is God's radical purity. One of the clear summations of Christ's teaching, according to the Apostle John, who was authorized to summarize it, was this. God is light. Now, that may come as a surprise as to many of you because you think God is love. <laughs> that is indeed in 1 John. We'll see that in chapter 4. But interestingly, before he ever talks about God being love, he first and foremost says that God is light, and you must understand God this way before you can accurately examine whether or not your faith is real. So, very important question for us. What does it mean that God is light? <laughs> Well, for both Christians and non-Christians, both now and for countless years past, light has served as a metaphor for truth, knowledge, and for righteousness, virtue. Think about truth for a moment. In our own day, we often symbolize knowledge with a light bulb turning on, right? We affirm people for their bright ideas. We thank people for shedding light on the subject. By these metaphors, what are we talking about? A greater awareness of truth. We can better see reality that was formerly obscure to us. And same thing with error. We equate it with darkness. When we don't understand something or we're not sure about something, what do we say? That we're in the dark on that subject. Meaning we lack knowledge. We, we cannot perceive reality this is nothing new. Biblical metaphors throughout the Old Testament equate God's truth and knowledge with the purity of light. These were universally understood by Jews and Gentiles alike. I mean, you could span literature literally through the millennia and see these analogies. But not only did the ancient biblical record use light and darkness as a metaphor for truth and error, but many ancient texts even prominently used light and darkness as a picture of virtue and good. This brings us to our modern day. 
Think about it, just from a literary perspective, whether it be in a book that you've read or a movie that you've watched, the heroes are represented by light and evil lurks in the shadows. It's portrayed with varying shades of darkness. I reference it because I think many of you would be familiar with it. J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, for example. The orcs are born and bred in darkness. Mordor represents a dark and a dreary place on the map. But contrast that. Contrast that with the bright and well-lit shire from which the hobbits come. (laughs) They're virtuous, good, they're noble in heart. This is symbolism. This is something that is used frequently in literature throughout. So light here also represented God's radical moral purity, his utter holiness. And if you want to see the connection between these two, I would give you these words from John Stott. I think they're helpful. Light is truth and light is purity is righteousness. What what is the connection? He says this, the effect of light is not just to make people see truth, but to enable them to walk, purity. Right conduct, not just clear vision, is the benefit which light bestows. This makes sense? They're connected. When we say God is light, he is all truth, and because he is all truth, we know how to live in light of him, which is righteousness, purity before him, holiness. You know, I want you to note the radical nature of the biblical record. We believe here that every word of the Bible is inspired. It doesn't just say that God is light. It says that in him there is no darkness at all. This is a a stark contrast with ancient, ancient, uh, ancient Eastern religions like Taoism. They've erred in their universally recognized symbol of yin and yang. Maybe you've seen those. Maybe your kids or you in the 70s thought that was a cool necklace to have. (laughs) The black and the white. It means essentially that in everything good, there's a little bit of evil, and in everything evil, there's a little bit of good. That's not the biblical record, friends. Because John so clearly adds these words, and in him there is no darkness at all. Now, this is important. This is so important for the implications that will follow. We need to grasp and review and just Pack it in our minds one more time that God is all truth, all virtue, all right, all pure, which means there is no error in him, no evil, no wrong, no impurity. And because he is light, he is the opposite of darkness, error, sin, evil. And just as light and darkness do not coexist in one another, neither does God and error, God and evil. Now, hang with me. Upon that theological foundation... Do you see the ethical implications of this for those who would claim to have fellowship with this radically pure God? Here's the ethical implication. A pattern of purity. If you theologically would claim and believe that God is light and in him is no darkness at all, it will have some type of impact on the pattern of your behavior. That's where verse 6 could scare us. It says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Here we go. Here's your your evidence of a counterfeit. Counterfeit fellowship with God has two things. One, it makes a claim, and then second, it has a conduct to back it up. Ready for the claim? Here's the claim. I have fellowship with God. 
All right, that's what you're on the lookout for. So if you or someone you know claims to have fellowship with God, guess what? It could be a counterfeit. You say, well, that doesn't help me very much because both Christians and non-Christians would claim that. Well, get ready for number two. Number two is not just the claim, but it's in the conduct. It conducts itself differently. It says, while we walk in darkness. Remember what the claim is, by the way. The fellowship... We said this for those of you who were here last week, that fellowship means to enter into partnership with someone. I, I use the analogy of a pew. Each of you have taken a part of the pew. You're, you're together in that. You share that in common. When we say that we have fellowship with God, we share in His divine life. We've entered into that fellowship, that relationship. We have something in common. And that should mark us. It should be evident And it should be evident in the way we conduct ourselves. And that's why John uses the term walk in darkness. I love that because while claiming fellowship with God, walk is such an appropriate term because it fits so well with the term talk. We talk about that all the time, right? You can talk the talk, but can you walk the walk? It's the same thing in Greek. He's saying, look, this isn't just the claim, this is the conduct. And here, the the conduct is present tense. He's referring to one's ongoing pattern of life. You could say it this way. We who are walking in darkness are counterfeits. Or we who are regularly behaving impurely or unjustly are counterfeits. To spot a counterfeit Christian, you don't just listen to his lips, but you look at his pattern of life. You don't just listen for her profession, but you look at her practice, her pattern of life. And let's not just think about others for a moment. To be true to the text, we really need to think more personally because notice that the Apostle John, when writing this, uses the pronoun we. He doesn't say those people. He says this is true of any of us. Even I, as an apostle, if this was true of me, if I walked in darkness, it would be fake. So let's change our pronoun usage a little bit. If our life for God doesn't line up with what our lips say about God, or if our practice of godliness doesn't line up with our profession of godliness, two things are true of us. And are we ready to hear this? Here they are, the biblical record. One, this is true of you. If those two things don't line up, one, we lie. We lie. We lie. It's present tense. We are lying. Our our lips don't line up with reality. I could tell you this morning, I am in Antarctica. But I'm not. I could say, it's snowing outside. But it's not. And if my lips didn't line up with my, uh, my life, excuse me, didn't line up with my lips, I can say, I'm a Christian. But I'm not. You're lying. We're lying. That's not the only thing that he says is true of you. Not only are we lying, but he adds, we do not practice the truth. Our life does not correspond with reality. This isn't uh, practice as in like basketball practice. This is practice as in someone who practices medicine or someone who practices law. (laughs) Most of us in this room today don't practice medicine or law. I said most of us. I get that some of you do. 
in a similar way here, because that's not our, our, our pattern of life, <laughs> we can't say that about ourselves. He's saying, if this is true of you, you don't practice truth. That's something that can't be associated with you. Truth cannot be identified with us. But now notice the contrast. Authentic fellowship with God. Okay, so that's the fake. What about authentic fellowship with God? It's also evidenced by a certain way of life, but it looks way different. So what's the evidence of authenticity? Look at verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, notice the word, but if. I mean, like he is setting up a stark contrast here. Even though he still contemplates the, patterns of, the pattern of one's life, now he is looking at a different kind of conduct. Righteousness, integrity, truth, purity. Again, present tense verb. Someone who is continually, regularly, or habitually walking or behaving or living or practicing godliness. I would say it this way. Maybe this will be helpful for you. When you observe this person's course of life, you think it has an awful lot in common with a pure and holy God. Just as God acts consistently with his own character, so this person also acts consistently with the character of God. Maybe an analogy from science would be helpful. This is a fact. Moths are drawn to light. Roaches scurry from it. It's in their nature. It's in their pattern. To use John's word, it's in their walk. Can you make the connection? Real Christians are drawn to light. They're drawn to truth. They're drawn to godly living. Fake Christians scurry from it. It's in their nature, their pattern. Their walk. Please hear this confirmed by the lips of our Lord. In John chapter 3, verses 19 to 21. By the way, in the shadow of the all-famous John 3.16, Jesus says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Jesus said it. Counterfeit Christians love darkness. They prefer not to think about God's truth and character. They don't want their sin to be exposed, so they flee truth that burns brightly in places that preach Jesus. They even scurry from people that live like Jesus. Whereas those with authentic fellowship with God, they love his truth, they love God's ways. In fact, one with genuine fellowship with God also enjoys fellowship with God's people. Notice how he finishes out the verse in verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, notice this, you would think he'd say we have fellowship with God, but notice this, he says we have fellowship with one another. Well, there's a surprise. By saying one another, he's again referring in context to the apostolic group, the people authenticated by the risen Christ, God's group, God's true people. Practically speaking, this means that godly living leads to good relationships with other godly people. Let me just be like rubber meets the road practical for a moment. 
Counterfeit Christians do not enjoy relationships with those who are walking in the light. You want your giveaway? Just ask who their friends are. Your friends do say something about you. Birds of a feather. So if you enjoy the company of other godly saints in this church, it's likely because you share common life in God. If you don't enjoy the company of other people who you know to be godly, I'll let you draw your own conclusion. Notice the next reality of those who, whose walk lines up with their talk about God. It's right there in verse 7, right at the end. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. <laughs> what a beautiful benefit. This is the one who is truly being cleansed from all sin. Jesus' blood here, by the way, can sound kind of graphic for some of you, but it's, it's representative of his sacrificial death. In the Old Testament, a blood sacrifice was required for the people to be acceptable in God's presence. You need to understand something. Sin does something to you. It does something in you. It makes you unclean before God. And God treats us differently if stained by sin. Because he's holy. You know, as much as you love little babies, I don't know anyone in the room that says, I don't like little babies. It's kind of part of what it is to be human. As much as you may love a little baby, when it soils itself, you don't quite love it as much. <laughs> or at least you don't enjoy it as much. You know, you could be all up in its face and having it all around you. And then once that happens, they're at arm's length. It's because it's dirty, it's, it's polluted, it needs to be clean. God has an averseness to sin. It is something that is disgusting to him. It is morally repugnant. When, when people soil themselves with you, if you will, with their own selfish desires and inclinations, a holy God puts himself at distance from someone like that. That is what he does. And yet notice what the text says here. They are not beyond reach forever. <laughs> they are not indefinitely stained. But if they've received this message of the risen Christ, they actually are being cleansed continually from all sin. Like, like they never receive that saint. He never treats them that way. They're always pure in his sight. He always brings them close because of what Christ has done. I mean, this is where the book of Hebrews is so helpful. I mean, they tried to make provision through the blood of bulls and goats, but it just could never work. And then you get to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. Write it down. Go look at it this afternoon. It's excellent. It was fully and finally paid through the blood of Christ, and we have been brought near, and we enjoy fellowship now forever. And how do we know who enjoys this? It is the person who has been made so clean that he walks in that. He evidences that. Listen, I, I need to be clear here. Think, think hard with me for a moment. This isn't works-based fellowship. This isn't, is not, let's be clear, this is not works-based fellowship. It is works-evidenced fellowship. It is not we must walk in the light to get fellowship. All right, let's be clear. It is we will walk in the light because we have fellowship. Do you see the difference between the two? 
Authentic fellowship is evidenced by a pattern of life characterized by purity because we have been made pure. Righteousness because we have been made righteous. Godliness because we are being restored to the image of God by the Spirit. Because of what Jesus accomplished through His death and subsequent resurrection, the pattern of our life accords with God who is light, in whom is no darkness at all. It has done something in us. It has made us different. So much so that it becomes evident on the outside. The practical question is, do you see evidence of this? John wrote this to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. I mean, really, he wanted to assure those who were walking in the light, right? He didn't want them to be in any doubt. No matter how many people may have left, he wanted them to be assured. But I'm going to make up a word here. It may help. He wanted to unsure those who were walking in the darkness. It's a double-edged sword. He wanted those who were walking in the light to be assured. He wanted those who were not walking in the light to be unsured. He didn't want them to be confident that they enjoyed a relationship of God. Look, for some of you, you should be assured of your fellowship this morning. You're drawn to godliness like a moth drawn to flame. Do you sometimes flitter off in the wrong direction? Oh, yeah. I see moths in the darkness too. But that's not their craving. You would return to the light. You you return to the light knowing that the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses you from all sin. That's what someone with a real, authentic, genuine relationship with God, that's what they look like. Some of you, I say this kindly, I don't say this harshly, you need to be unsured It doesn't matter what you went over with your mom as a child by your bedside or what some priest poured over your head in the waters of baptism. The religious ceremony or ritual or rites or whatever it is that you point back to or no evidence. They will not stand in the court of God's law as evidence. The only thing that he accepts is repentance and rest in Christ that results in a pattern of godly living. If this is unclear to some of you, if you don't know, if you you seem more unsure than sure, man, you really need to talk to someone today. You could talk to me You could talk to another pastor. You could talk to a godly Christian. But this is a big deal. And by the way, I want you to know I'm trying to do something very intentional. I am intentionally not departing from the verbiage of the text. I didn't say any sins this morning, specifically. I've talked about darkness I've talked about unrighteousness. I've talked about holiness, all in vague, nondescript terms. So here's what you need to be clear on. If you feel convinced in your spirit this morning that you may not be sure, it was the Spirit Himself who brought those things up to your mind and not this preacher. So genuine fellowship with God is evidenced by a pattern of godly behavior. But that's not all. In fact, 
If this was the only evidence, it would be quite disturbing for many of us who don't pattern this behavior perfectly. Thus, John gives a second evidence of genuine fellowship with God, and here it is, an acknowledgement of personal sin. Are you ready for the next one? An acknowledgement of personal sin. Authentic fellowship with God is evidenced by an acknowledgement of personal sin. Look at verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now this is reassuring. Fake fellowship with God denies personal sinfulness, whereas genuine fellowship with God continually acknowledges sins to God alone. So counterfeit fellowship with God, it's got that claim, right? It's always saying something. Counterfeit fellowship with God loves to talk. And this is what this particular branch of counterfeit fellowship claims. It says that we have no sin. It denies the existence of personal sin altogether. Now, historically speaking, there's something brewing here. There's something going on in that first century context. It seems like many in that day were led to believe that their souls or spirits were pure and their bodies were mere envelopes. The stuff that mattered was on the inside. So, in light of that logic, whatever they did with their bodies didn't matter. Stuff done with the body was merely an external, and those mere externals weren't a problem. They didn't need forgiveness. They were already fine. John is writing against this. In modern parlance, this group would claim that they're actually a good person on the inside, even though their actions could be perceived as sinful. Now, I will be specific here, because these are things that I often hear. Here are some, what I think are popular sayings of fake Christians. Are you ready? What really matters is the part of me that no one can see. Don't judge me. You can't see my heart. Another thing I think they would say, I'm not sinful, I'm not a sinner. There's no sin in me, I just mess up from time to time. Just mistakes. Or, you know, I just act on the impulses with which God made me. I mean, since I mean well, I'm not really all that bad. Or, Uh, Sin may be out there somewhere, but it's not in me. Things are good between me and God. I I found this one prayer. It's a satire. This is not a real prayer. But it captures this sentiment well. Benevolent Father, we have occasionally had some minor errors of judgment, but they're not really our fault. We've made some unfortunate choices. Due to forces beyond our control, we have sometimes failed to act in accordance with our own best interests and to be true to ourselves, but under the circumstances, we did the best we could. We're glad to say that we're doing okay, perhaps even slightly above average. Be your own sweet self with those of us who admit we're not perfect. Grant that we never lose self-respect and we ask all these things according to the unlimited tolerances which we have a right to expect from you. Amen. That is the popular sentiment. No sin. What do you think John, the authorized apostolic representative of Jesus Christ, would say to this prayer? What would he say to those lines of thinking? What is the Spirit-inspired response to this claim? 
Again, it's twofold. One, we deceive ourselves. If that's you, the text says, you've deceived yourself. We literally lead ourselves astray. That verb, deceive ourselves, is planao, from which we get our word planet. When we see planets going across the sky, it means to wander off, to stray off. It was the verb that was frequently associated with false teachers in the New Testament, and you'll find this one interesting, the Antichrist in the book of Revelation. But guess what's going on here? It's not that someone else has been deceived and led off astray, but we have deceived ourselves. Second, the truth is not in us. Not only have we deceived self, but we're devoid of truth. This is crystal clear. We're not just partially wrong. It isn't that we're out in left field somewhere. We're not even in the ballpark. There is no truth in us if we think that we are good people, if we say we have not sinned or we have no sin. And I say this to, primarily to our church members, or maybe to those of you who have been visiting Do you see the prevalent danger here? Do you see why from this pulpit or in our classes or even you yourself, why we sometimes encourage you to say hard things lovingly? Like why you have to point out sin? Why you can't just ignore it? I know that for many of the people with whom you work and labor, their teachers or their mom or their psychologist told them that they were really a good person. I get that. I fully understand that their university professor proved to them that sin was just a social construct or some other intellectual liberal had convinced them that sin was just a power play of the religious elite to control the masses. But Jesus said something quite different. Mark 7, 21, listen. The words of Christ. From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, Envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Paul, another one of Jesus' chosen spokespeople wrote, There is none righteous, no, not one, Romans 3.10. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Here's what it's going to come down to. For you or or for whomever it is that you're trying to help, who are you going to believe? Your mom, your psychologist, your history professor? Or Jesus? Those with authentic fellowship with God agree with Jesus and Paul, by the way. They agree that they have personal sin. 
which leads us to the clarity on those who have authentic fellowship with God. It's there in verse 9. They actively and ongoingly acknowledge personal sin. Look at your text. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have another one of those present tense verbs, those ongoing continual action verbs. Here it is. If you're a Christian, you're ongoingly and regularly confessing your sin to God. You're acknowledging your sinfulness before him. Actually, the word there is sins, plural, implying like particular acts. We don't deny sin, but we take ownership of it before God. And God, on the basis of his faithfulness and justice, forgives and cleanses our sin. Now, there's a few important words here, and we need to kind of take them in order. All right, notice what it says about God. All right, our forgiveness is rooted in God. It says that he forgives, not because we earned it, but because he is faithful and just. I've never really understood that. I, honestly, I memorized this verse as a child, but I've never really thought, what does it mean that he is faithful and just to forgive? I just like the forgive part. This faithful idea is so beautiful. And maybe one of the most exciting things that I've come across in years. Because faithfulness, I mean, just basically stated, means to be trustworthy or consistent or dependable. Right? For kids that are in here today, old faithful at Yellowstone National, it's supposed to be dependable. It's not as dependable anymore. When we talk about a faithful spouse, we're talking about one who fulfills his or her marriage vows. You can count on them for that. In a similar way here, God's remedying sin is something you can count on him to do for those who acknowledge sin. He's been doing this all along. See, this is what I'm so excited about because we tend to think that this is like a New Testament thing. Friends, this is who God has been for eternity past. And one of the fundamental revelations of God in the Old Testament is Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. This is God at Sinai. Thunderous Sinai, like with the Ten Commandments and lightning. and I mean, listen to this, though. The Lord passed before him, thus Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. Do you see how it first and foremost describes God's faithfulness? He's faithful to forgive those who come to him for forgiveness. And he's not just faithful, but he's just. That's actually what the second half of that was talking about. He is just in forgiving. What does justice have to do with forgiveness? Well, Typically, we think of justice as getting something that we deserve. And I don't know about you, but if I stand up and say and admit openly that I have done something wrong, I don't know that I want justice. Like, if I was, like, about to, like, see the judge, I would want the nice one, the merciful one. I don't want the just one if I'm going to make a confession. So how is this helpful for us? Why is it that God is portrayed as someone who is just? It is because he has not broken his own rules in forgiving us. God maintains his justice in forgiving us because the penalty due our sin was paid by Christ. He didn't just wink at it. 
Somebody paid for it, and that somebody was Jesus. He didn't just turn a blind eye to sin. He ensured its payment through the sacrifice of his son, which leads to the benefits for us. So you've got God. It's grounded in God, but now notice us. If we confess, this is what's true of us. He is faithful and just to forgive our sins. Forgive means to release from a debt. They no longer owe it. Uh, Interpersonally, by the way, just throwing this out there, if you say that you've forgiven someone, that means that you're not holding it against them. It means that you don't keep bringing it back up. might help some husbands and wives in the room. Because God doesn't bring it back up to us. It has been paid. And the receipt, if you will, of payment was Christ's resurrection. Penalty satisfied. We are forgiven. But this group, listen to me, it only consists of those who have confessed and are confessing their sin. There's a second benefit. Not only are we forgiven, but it says that we're cleansed. Similar to the idea from earlier, right? It's not only off our record, but it's out of our soul. Spiritually speaking, you're holy in God's sight. Have any of you ever sinned so bad? You've done something so heinous. You just felt dirty. Welcome to the human experience. And yet what it says here is that you're clean. You're clean. It has cleansed you from all sin. Notice that, though. All sin. I mean, whether it be one that you've done or whether it be one that somebody else has done. Come on, do a mental exercise with me for a moment. Think of the absolute worst most heinous, deplorable, despicable sin that you could absolutely imagine. He can even forgive that. All sin. All sin. All sin forgiven? Why? Because he's faithful and just to do so. For whom? For those who are confessing their sin to him. So practically speaking, what does this confession look like? Well, friends, it happens initially at conversion. No one in this room came to Christ in a relationship with Christ without first having acknowledged that they had sinned before him. It, it starts there, but hey, I want to let you know, especially for those of you who are new Christians, it continues throughout. <laughs> yes, you recognize your sinfulness and your need for a Savior, But at the same time, you're repeatedly acknowledging your sinfulness before God. And guess what? You're continually being reminded of his forgiveness and the purity that he himself can grant. You know, this is is about as practical as I can get. I'm just going to kind of throw out, this is from the Apostle Paul, all right? Maybe this will help you in your Christian walk. You know that the closer you get to Christ, the more you recognize your own sin. I don't want anyone to think in here today that something's wrong with you. Because you understand your sin to a greater degree of clarity now than you did 10 years ago. It actually kind of makes sense because here's what happens. When you, when you come into a relationship with God, the Holy Spirit indwells your heart. He gives you a capacity to see that which you didn't see before. He also gives you a capacity to do that which you weren't able to do before. But here's the deal. The seeing is easier than the doing. You get more and more clarity on God's law and his revelation and you become more and more aware of what he wants from you. And at the same time, you're making progress in doing it, but it's just not catching up to the same degree as what you're learning. And so the closer you get to Christ, the more you feel like you're not like him. 
And the reason I say I got this from Paul is because if you follow his letters chronologically, you'll find that he makes some interesting statements. I mean, at one point, earlier in his ministry, he calls himself the least of the apostles. He goes down a few more years, writes the book of Ephesians, and then he calls himself the very least of all saints. And then in one of his final letters, he calls himself in 1 Timothy, the chief of sinners. You see the progression? As Paul got older, he had a greater awareness of his own sin. And this is why Christians often feel so wretched. I noticed, uh, Phil, that we changed the word, that we didn't change the words, but somebody changed the words to the Isaac Watts hymn at the cross. Because the original hymn said, For such a worm as I. That's what I sang. I have no idea what the thing said. I just knew that everybody else sang something different. But why did Watts originally write worm? <laughs> because, man, he just really had an understanding of his sinfulness. The more that he understood, it's like, wow, I am, I am not worthy of this. I don't deserve this. That's why we sang in our last song, in the first verse, minor days that God has numbered. I was made to walk with him. Yet I look for worldly treasure and forsake the king of kings. But mine is hope in my Redeemer. Though I fall, His love is sure. For Christ has paid for every failing. I am His forevermore. Sin, confessed, enables you to enter into a new appreciation for what the blood of Jesus has done for you. We claim with the great 18th century hymn writer and evangelist John Wesley. Listen to these words carefully. It's only two lines. Old Jesus, full of truth and grace, more full of grace than I of sin. Think about that for a moment. Jesus, full of truth and grace, more full of grace than I of sin. It actually leads us to appreciate him more. Thus, there's a third evidence that we will examine more closely next week. And if you want to go and write it down, you can. It makes a lot of sense. Genuine fellowship with God is also evidenced by dependence upon Christ for righteousness. Genuine evidence, genuine fellowship with God is also evidenced by dependence upon Christ for righteousness. But I'm going to stop there because I think that these two have given us enough to meditate on for now. And the two that we've examined are really, if you think about it, counterbalancing evidences of fellowship with God. You know what I mean by counterbalance. Like they, they weigh each other out. They even out. You've got on the one side a pattern of godly behavior, right? On the other side, you've got an acknowledgement of personal sin. Friends, you've got to get this or you're going to have a miserable week, I promise. You need both. You need to be looking for both. If you ignore the pattern of godly behavior, your fate will be like those in Matthew 7, 21 to 23, who cried out, Lord, Lord. But on account of the fact that they did not do the will of the Father, I'm straight from the text here, and because of their lawlessness, they were assigned to eternal damnation. That is self-deceit. Don't ignore the pattern of godly behavior. 
But at the same time, please, please, please do not ignore the acknowledgement of personal sin or you will end up like the Pharisee that was praying in the temple. Remember the story in Luke 18? There were these two guys praying in the temple. The first was the Pharisee, and this was his prayer. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And then he goes on to list his accomplishments. But there was another man praying in the temple that day. Hear the words of his prayer. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus adds, I tell you, this man, the one who was confessing his sin, went down justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Listen, while there is a pattern of godliness, there is not yet perfection of godliness. We enjoy genuine fellowship with God, but we're not perfect. We're progressing. We're not perfect but we have been pardoned. Now, here's the simple application today. This is as clear as I can make it. At this point, I am operating under the authority of counsel, not the authority of command. I have nothing in this text that says you must do these three things. But as someone who is a physician of the soul, this would be what I would write for you as a prescription before you left the office. Do two of the three things. First, Examine yourself. Examine yourself. Just take some time, pray and ask, are these true of me? Second, let someone else examine you. The dangerous thing about self-deceit is that you've already convinced yourself that you're okay. But ask a godly person. Not, Not your worldly friend. I'm talking about somebody that you really believe loves Jesus. See if they see these evidences in you. And the third thing that you could do, again, just two out of the three, share this with someone in your sphere of influence. And and you say, well, how would that work? Well, you just say, hey, can I share with you something that challenged me this week? I was in church on Sunday. This challenged me. I wanted to share it with you. (laughs) There you go. There's your conversation started. The truth is, friends, we know people who have been self-deceived. We know people who need assurance. (laughs) And we've been given the truth today to help with both. So let's pray. Let's pray now for the Spirit to search our hearts. And when I'm done praying, I'll pray one more time in song for the Spirit to strengthen our hearts to walk in the light this week. Father in heaven, it is our desire to know that we know you. For this is one of the great themes of this letter. You would not have us be deceived. You would not have us profess a relationship with God who is light, but practice something different. And Lord, at the same time, we fail. We don't always live up to that. And so encourage us with the fact that we find our righteousness in you, that you alone are the source of our purity, even though we mess it up so often. Or give us strength, Lord, even in these three areas. I pray that you would, your spirit would work in hearts and that show people today whether or not they truly have authentic fellowship with you. I pray that they would have the strength and the courage, if needed, to talk to someone else about this. And Lord, for all of us here, give us divine appointments. 
to pass this along to others who may need it. And we ask for your strength and your help. We ask for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.